I thank God for all who have led us so beautifully in worship today. We are continuing a sermon series called Rediscovering Church. And we hope many of you are rediscovering the meaning and the beauty and the blessings of church life. I'm going to read Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6 from the New Revised Standard Version. And the title of today's sermon is The Unity of the Church. I, therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. Let us pray. O God, in this preaching moment, I simply ask that you would help me to speak your word. Help them to hear your word. Lord, help us all to do your word. I pray in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. The late I.E. Reedy used to tell a story about Shiloh Baptist Church in Cannon County, Tennessee. Years ago, Shiloh Baptist Church had a phrase from Ephesians 4, at the front of their sanctuary, it said, One Lord, one faith, one baptism. It came about, however, that there was division in the church. One group left and one group stayed. The congregation had already purchased coal for the winter, and they decided that the fairest thing to do would be to divide it into two piles so that the group that was leaving would take one pile of coal and the group that was staying would keep the other pile of coal. Sometime after that, one Sunday morning, as worshipers arrived to Shiloh Baptist Church, they saw that someone had added to the phrasing at the front of the sanctuary so that it now said, One Lord, one faith, one baptism, and two piles of coal. Baptists, of course, are renowned for our dissent, our disagreements, and our disunity. Such tendencies trace to our denominational roots as a breakaway group from the Church of England. One of the first Baptist churches the Baptist Church of Lincolnshire, England, was founded in 1644. This church was united in the belief that babies were not to be baptized, but only those who professed faith in Jesus Christ. However, church members had different views about exactly how baptism should be administered. One group in the church thought that an abundant sprinkling of water was sufficient, but another group in the church 
believed that only full immersion in the water was properly biblical. This dispute about how to baptize people led to the church splitting in 1651, seven years after it had been founded. You know, two piles of coal. So the next time somebody asks you why Baptist churches are always splitting, you can tell them it's been a tradition of ours since the 1600s. It's not just Baptists, though. (laughs) Not by a long shot. United Methodists have all kinds of trouble staying united. There's a big difference between the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America and the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. And Presbyterians are broken up into several groups, including PCUSA, PCA, OPC, and CPC. There's also the BPC and the EPC, as well as the EPO and the ARP. And these are just a few of the Protestant denominations in the United States. We haven't even considered Roman Catholics, the Eastern Orthodox, Coptic Christians, and many, many more. One estimate suggests that there are 33,000 denominations of Christianity in the world. Many of these groups proliferated after the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, but the greatest divide in all of church history occurred long before that in 1054 in an event known as the Great Schism. This was when the Eastern Church and the Western Church went their separate ways. You know, two piles of coal. The schism had been brewing for centuries by the time the Pope of Rome in the West and the Patriarch of Constantinople in the East excommunicated one another. You're out of the church. Well, so are you. What were the reasons for the great schism? The church in the East used leavened bread for the Lord's Supper, while the church in the West used unleavened bread. The church in the East did not require clergy to be celibate, while the church in the West did require clergy to be celibate. Yet the main theological sticking point, the focus of this entire controversy, was whether the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, or only from the Father. The Western Church said the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, while the Eastern Church maintained that the Holy Spirit proceeds only from the Father. Now, most Christians I know today don't care very much at all about this particular theological question, if they've ever even heard of it. But this controversy was once divisive enough to cause the greatest schism the church has ever undergone. Of course, divisions in the church go back long before that. In fact, multiple passages in the New Testament indicate that divisions have plagued Christians since the first churches came into being. Divisive issues in New Testament times often related to the constant conflict between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, including questions about whether Gentile Christians needed to be circumcised or obey Old Testament food laws. This was a point of contention in the churches in Ephesus, as we see in Ephesians 2, where Paul explains that 
Christ died on the cross to bring Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians together in peace. Ephesians directly addresses divisive hostility between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians that threatened to tear the early churches apart. You know, two piles of coal. Yet amid such discord, amid such dissension, and amid such divisions, Ephesians 4 unambiguously proclaims the unity of the church. Verses 4 through 6 feature seven declarations of oneness. There is one body, one hope, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. How could Ephesians 4 so emphatically assert the unity of the church amid the disharmony that was afoot? And how can we take Ephesians 4 seriously today in view of the constant disunity that has plagued the church ever since? The main reason is because church unity is based on the unity of God. Notice the Holy Trinity here. Verse 6 mentions one God, who is the Father. Verse 5 mentions one Lord, who is Jesus Christ, the Son. And verse 4 mentions one Spirit, who is the Holy Spirit. The unity of Christians is founded on the unity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Just as it would be inappropriate to disregard the distinct persons of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so it would be inappropriate to dishonor the distinctiveness of different denominations, congregations, and individuals that compose the church. On the other hand, just as it would be misguided to think of God as anything other than one God, so it would be misguided to think of the church as anything other than one church. The oneness of God and the oneness of the church go hand in hand. Church unity, therefore, is no marginal issue. It is tantamount to the oneness of God. Notice that church unity is a fact, not an aspiration. The text does not say there should be one body. It says there is one body. It doesn't say there should be one Lord, one faith, one baptism. It says there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. It seems to me that affirmations of church unity always exist alongside evidence of division. Yet evidence of division does not negate the theological fact of church unity. There may be two piles of coal. But there is one church of God. In other words, the unity of the church is a gift from God rather than an accomplishment of Christians. Unity is a divine gift we can either live into or not live into. Just as Christ has given us joy, but we can still live in gloom if we so choose. Just as Christ has given us hope, but we can still live in despair if we so choose. Just as Christ has given us forgiveness, but we can still live in guilt if we so choose. So Christ has given us unity. 
But we can still live in separation, contentiousness, and disharmony if we so choose. It's our responsibility to live into the unity that God has already given us. Our role is not to make unity, but to maintain unity. Have you ever been struck by a profound sense of unity with Christians of a different denomination, a different culture, a different language, a different race, or a different nation? I've worshipped with Christians in Japan, Romania, Haiti, Italy, Israel, and multiple places across the United States. And I've often been overwhelmed by a sense of spiritual unity despite our demographic differences. On these occasions, we did not develop unity, but rather discovered a unity that was already there. Christian unity is a given. It's a creation of the Holy Spirit. Our charge is to maintain it. Now, we might think the best way to do this, and I used to think this, is to get everybody on the exact same page in terms of all of our beliefs. But according to Ephesians 4, we maintain church unity not by enforcing dogma, but by exhibiting virtue. Five virtues appear in verses 2 through 3. Humility, gentleness, patience, love, and peace. Four of these five virtues are listed among the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. So these are virtues that the Holy Spirit produces in us and through us. Two of these virtues are listed as Christ's own character traits when he says himself, in Matthew eleven twenty nine, I am gentle and humble at heart. So these virtues reflect Christ-like character. The primary virtue for cultivating unity, the first one listed, is humility. Bible scholar Margaret MacDonald writes, Humility is what diffuses the spirit of competition. Indeed, when Christians are humble, we are less interested in being right and more interested in being together. We are less interested in getting our way and more interested in following the way of Christ. We are less prideful about our own preferences and more poised to partner with Christians of different cultures, languages, theologies, denominations, and worship styles. Likewise, when congregations are humble, they see other churches as resources rather than rivals. They seek to cooperate with other churches for God's glory rather than competing with other churches for vain glory. They're less interested in promulgating their own power and more interested in practicing peace. They're less likely to think in terms of two piles of Coal and more inclined to share with one another in the warm fellowship of peace. That's what binds Christians together, after all, the bond of peace. The Greek term translated bond here literally means the middle thing 
that connects two or more other things. It can mean a link, a chain, or a fetter. Bible scholar Morna Hooker suggests that just as the apostle writing this epistle was tied by bonds of imprisonment, so Christians are bound, connected, and linked together by peace. Peace is our bond. Peace is our link. Peace, the peace of Christ, is what ties us together. Not dogma, peace. Not the same way of doing baptisms, peace. Not the exact same beliefs about the Lord's Supper, peace. Not the same systems of church governance, peace. Not the same culture, peace. Not the same skin color, peace. Not the same nation, peace. The emphasis in Ephesians 4 is not on drafting a detailed statement of faith for everybody to sign, but on relating to one another with Christian virtue. We sometimes get preoccupied with questions of, what's your position on this or that? But Ephesians 4 indicates that church unity is less about our positions and more about our dispositions. Specifically, a disposition of humility, gentleness, patience, love, and peace. Such a disposition is vital because practicing church unity is an urgent priority. We can't just settle for two piles of coal because working through things would require some effort. Verse 3 says, make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There's an unmistakable urgency oozing out of this text. The Bible scholar Marcus Bart says, a full effort of the whole person is meant, involving the will, sentiment, reason, physical strength, and total attitude. This is why multiracial Christian gatherings and multi-denominational Christian gatherings and multi-generational Christian gatherings and multicultural Christian gatherings and multinational Christian gatherings deserve our foremost support and enthusiastic participation when possible. We're not called to just give unity a try whenever we have some downtime. We're called to make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Far too often the global church merely reflects the divisions of the wider world. If it seems there are two piles of coal out in the wider world, then we settle for two piles of coal in the church. We reflect a spirit of racial hostility rather than practicing a spirit of unity. We reflect a spirit of socioeconomic divisions rather than practicing a spirit of unity. We reflect a spirit of political animosity uh, rather than practicing a spirit of unity. Did you know that according to Pew Research Center, 88% of the current U.S. Congress is Christian? 88%. Amid all the talk of 
polarization and division in our nation? What if every Christian in Congress were to make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace? More broadly, did you know that according to Pew Research Center, approximately 65% of Americans identify as Christian? That's almost two-thirds of the population. What if every Christian in the United States of America were to make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace? Even more broadly, did you know that according to Pew Research Center, approximately 31% of the global population identifies as Christian? That's about one out of every three people on the planet. What if every Christian in the world were to make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace? Such dedicated efforts to practice Christian unity with all urgency would not only change the worldwide church, they would change the world. According to Christianity Today, Back in 2015, a Ukrainian woman named Angela Kachinko and a Russian man named Alexei Shabinsky met one another at the Lausanne Conference in Jakarta. At this gathering of Christians from all over the world, these two believers became fast friends, discovered a shared passion for evangelism, and thereafter, supported one another in their respective ministries. Back in February, Angela and her children evacuated their home in the Ukraine just before the Russian invasion began. But she was devastated the day the bombing started because she was worried sick about her husband and her grandmother and her friends and her home that were all in the Ukrainian city of Sunni, right near the Russian border. That same afternoon, she joined an emergency online prayer meeting organized by the Lausanne movement. When the host of the prayer meeting asked Angela how she was doing, she cried and expressed her anger. She said she felt betrayed, broken, and stepped on by Russia. She was scared for her family and friends and all those in Kiev, praying about whether they should stay or leave. The host of the prayer meeting asked if someone on the call would say a prayer for her. And the person who volunteered was her Russian friend, Alexei, whom she had met at the conference years before. Alexei had joined the call that day because he was feeling ashamed that his country was starting a war against the Ukraine, a country he had personally visited multiple times. He was grieving for his Ukrainian friends who were endangered by the violence. And when he saw his friend Angela on the call and heard all the terrible things that she was going through, he was heartbroken. And so he volunteered to pray for her, and as he prayed, he wept. Angela then followed by wanting to pray for Alexei as their friendship and fellowship in Christ transcended 
the violence between their two countries. If ever there were a time for two piles of coal. And yet these two Christians made every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Angela later said, as I heard Alexei's heartfelt prayer for me, my family, and my country, Ukraine, I could not contain my tears. His pain was real. His words reminded me that I was part of a family not based on nationality, skin color, or status. Only Jesus. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. Amen.